Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. You're listening to episode 105 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In this episode, we're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. How are we going to proceed today? There's so much fascinating stuff to cover that it won't all fit in a single episode. So what we'll do today is talk about St. Thomas and his times. We'll be looking at his place in Catholic thought, at his life, how he understood the world and the forces that operate in it, and how the concept of the occult was understood in general in his day. So what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we're going to be looking at what Aquinas said on individual occult topics, including astrology, crystal healing, amulets, casting lots, demons, ghosts, the evil eye, and psychic powers. You're listening to episode 106 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Nearly 800 years ago, one of the greatest intellects in church history, St. Thomas Aquinas, was born. Last episode, we looked at his life, his place in the history of Christian thought, and how people in his day understood the world, both its physical structure and what forces are at work in it. But the world contains many hidden or occult mysteries. So what did St. Thomas Aquinas have to say about these mysterious topics? What did Aquinas have to say about astrology, crystal healing, amulets, demons, ghosts, and psychic powers? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, how are we going to proceed uh, on this episode? Well, today we'll be looking at what Aquinas had to say about individual occult topics, like the ones you mentioned. People should go back and listen to last week's episode, number 105, for the background for today's discussion. One particularly important thing that we talked about last week is the Latin word occultus, and the fact it simply means hidden. So in Aquinas' day, saying something was occult did not mean saying it was sinister or bad or to be feared. Occult had a neutral meaning because there were many things in the world people didn't understand, and so their causes were hidden or occult. For example, Aquinas cited the fact that magnets have a hidden or occult power that lets them attract iron, but that didn't mean that magnets are sinister or to be avoided. As we'll see, Aquinas was actually quite open-minded and careful when evaluating hidden or occult phenomena, and he developed a set of principles that can still be used today when we need to do that. So let's start today by looking at individual things that we would consider occult. What did Aquinas have to say about astrology? For most people, this is one of the biggest and most surprising differences between Aquinas's day and our own. Basically, almost everybody in Europe believed in astrology. Back then, astronomy and astrology were not distinguished from each other. So to say that you didn't believe in astrology would be like saying you didn't believe in astronomy. In fact, Plato and Aristotle considered astronomy slash astrology as simply part of mathematics 
And so astrologers in the ancient world were known sometimes as mathematicians. You'd say, oh, yeah, go check with the mathematicians on that, meaning go check with the astrologers. There's a fascinating book on the history of astrology and mathematics by a guy named Alexander Boxer called A Scheme of Heaven, and it shows just how intertwined the two fields, mathematics and astronomy, astrology, were. So in Aquinas' day, the question, do you believe in astrology, wouldn't make any more sense than do you believe in astronomy or do you believe in mathematics? Those kinds of questions wouldn't even come up. The question was, what do you believe about the stars? Because some of the things that astrologers claimed were true and some were false, as we discussed back in episode 23 on astrology. For example, Aquinas knew that astrologers could predict some things with certainty. In the Summa Theologiae, for example, he mentions how astronomers can, quote, foretell a coming eclipse, close quote. So he knew, yeah, they can really totally predict when an eclipse is going to happen. And educated people thought, based on ideas from the ancient world, that the heavenly bodies like the stars and the planets exerted a great deal of influence on Earth. It was thought that they could affect things by occult forces they had, just like magnets can affect iron. And like magnets, these hidden forces were thought to be purely natural, you know, and they weren't bad. God designed magnets to have one kind of hidden force, and in their view, God designed the stars to have another kind of hidden force. So there was nothing wrong with that, and this meant that people could rely on these hidden but natural forces from the stars. For example, in medicine, herbologists would pick or prepare plants for medicines when the heavenly bodies were in certain alignments to ensure the potency of the herbs they were picking. And that practice actually isn't wholly without basis since plants ripen at different seasons, although that has to do with the sun rather than the moons or the other planets. Aquinas was thus quite prepared to see the stars as influencing physical bodies here on Earth. In the Summa, he wrote, The natural forces of natural bodies result from their substantial forms, which they acquire through the influence of heavenly bodies. Wherefore, through this same influence, they acquire certain active forces. We need to stop for a moment here and think about what Aquinas is saying. He knows that natural bodies have certain natural forces, like magnets' ability to attract iron. He says that these natural forces come from what he calls the substantial form of an object. So a magnet's ability to attract iron comes from the magnet's substantial form. Now, as we talked about last episode, in philosophy, a substance does not mean a stuff like tapioca or plastic is a substance in the modern sense. In the philosophical sense that Aquinas is using the term, a substance is a thing. And so when he talks about the substantial form of an object, he means the thing that makes the object what it is. So the substantial form of a magnet is the thing, the form that makes it a magnet. But Aquinas says in the passage you just read that the object gets its substantial form, quote, through the influence of the heavenly bodies, close quote. So it's the stars and the planets that give 
the magnet its substantial form. And so the reason that the magnet attracts iron is because it gets this power from the stars. And the same is true of any other natural body that can exert a natural force. It gets it from that ability from its substantial form and thus indirectly from the stars. And Aquinas didn't have a problem using the natural but hidden power of the stars to do things on Earth, as we'll see when we talk about crystal healing. Does that mean that he didn't have a problem with anything people were doing with astrology? Oh, no. Just because he thought the stars could influence things on Earth, that didn't mean that he thought everything you could do with them was okay. He didn't have a problem using the natural power of the stars, but he did think that some people were doing things with the stars that were superstitious. For example, some people were making what they called astronomical images. These were physical objects that they had carved or painted astron or written astrological symbols on. And that's what made them astronomical. You put these symbols on them and the symbols supposedly let you channel power from the stars. Aquinas said that that was superstitious because the symbols were artificial and so they couldn't attract any extra power from the stars. The stars might give a magnet its ability to attract iron, but just because you write or put an image, put a symbol on an image, those characters don't naturally give it any more power than it otherwise would have had. Uh, Consequently, he said, no force accrues to them from the influence of the heavenly bodies insofar as these symbols and, and images are artificial. Only the natural substances they're made of might have an effect. So as a result, astronomical images don't have any special power from the fact you put symbols on them. Any added power they might have thus isn't coming from the stars. And if and it's also not coming from God or the angels. So Aquinas would say you're you gotta may have some demons at being active here. So if you've got an astronomical image and for some reason it's more effective because of the symbols you put on it, it's not because of the stars or God or the angels. It's because demons have come along and are giving it its added efficacy to trick you. Now, I should point out that I don't know for sure what Aquinas would say about the idea of putting an astrological sign on an image just having no effect on the object's efficacy. My own perspective is that if you do something like that, you've got an object, you put an astrological symbol on it, that's not necessarily likely to get demons involved. Uh, The image may have no more efficacy than it would otherwise. In that case, the symbol would just be snake oil, something that has no effectiveness. And Aquinas might agree, but he and I would both agree that if you put a symbol on something and it gains effectiveness, then that is going to be likely due to the influence of demons because the symbol does not have a natural effect. What about using astrology to predict things? Did Aquinas think he could do that? Yeah, because the stars had influence on the physical world, Aquinas held that, quote, astrologers, by considering the stars, can foreknow and foretell things concerning rains and droughts. 
close quote. As an example, rains and droughts are clearly part of the natural world, and so it makes sense from his point of view to say that the stars would have an influence on them. Uh, you know, it's like if they're giving a magnet its ability to attract iron, you'd certainly expect them to affect larger systems like clouds and whether they give or withhold rain. The real question was what effect the stars would have on man, because we're not simply physical. We also have spirits, and those wouldn't necessarily be susceptible to the physical influence of the stars. Well, in antiquity, many people thought that the stars have a really big effect on man, that they rule our fates inexorably. What did Aquinas say about that? He, like other Christian thinkers, rejected this idea on the grounds that it isn't compatible with the gift of free will that God gave men. It's men's choices that ultimately determine their destiny, including whether they go to heaven or hell. And those choices get made by the human spirit, which is the seat of free will. So our souls aren't controlled by the stars the way purely natural objects are, on Aquinas' view. But that didn't mean the stars had no influence, because we also aren't purely spiritual the way angels are. We also have a physical side, and Aquinas held that the stars could affect our bodies. One way they could do so is by affecting our bodily sensations, the, you know, the feelings that we experience, including things like anger and concupiscence. Yeah, a lot of people just go with their feelings. They go with their gut, as we might say. Would that give the stars a kind of indirect influence on human behavior in Aquinas' view? Yes, he says that. The majority of men follow their passions, which are movements of the sensitive appetite, in which movements of the heavenly bodies cannot cooperate. So the stars can't take away your soul's free will, but Aquinas held that they could affect your bodily sensations, including things like anger and concupiscence, and that meant they could exert an influence on the decisions of many people, since many people just go with their feelings and don't resist them. Consequently, Aquinas concluded that Astrologers are able to foretell the truth in the majority of cases, especially in a general way. But not in particular cases, for nothing prevents man resisting his passions by his free will. But since few people do resist, astrologers were particularly able to predict what he referred to as public occurrences which depend on the multitude, such as wars and the like. In other words, you couldn't use astrology to predict with certainty what George will do on any given day since he's an individual with free will. But you could use astrology to at least estimate the actions of masses of people, since most people will follow their passions rather than resist them. So, for example, you could use astrology to estimate that the Flemish people as a group are likely to get angry enough with their neighbors to start a war, and so a war is likely to occur. In an analogous way, it's kind of like what economists do, right, where we they predict how large groups of people are going to buy or sell or that sort of thing. But they're not going to say this person is going to do this. Exactly. You could use on Aquinas's view. In fact, I almost used an economic additional example there. It wouldn't really fit with Aquinas's day. But in our day, if you had Aquinas's view, you could use the stars to predict, oh, we're going to have a recession or we're going to have a bull market or something like that. So in light of all that, did Aquinas regard astrology as the sin of divination? 
Not necessarily. It depends on how it's being used. Uh, Aquinas uses the term divination to refer to an improper way of predicting the future. So he distinguishes it from proper ways of making predictions. He writes, Now the causes of the future are threefold. For some produce their effects of necessity and always, and such like future effects can be foreknown and foretold with certainty from considering their causes, even as astrologers foretell a coming eclipse. Other causes produce their effects not of necessity in all ways, but for the most part, yet they rarely fail. And from such like causes, their future effects can be foreknown, not indeed with certainty, but by a kind of conjecture, even as astrologers, by considering the stars, can foreknow and foretell things concerning rains and droughts, and physicians concerning health and death. Those are the first two ways of predicting the future based on causes. First, by considering the causes of an event like an eclipse, you may be able to predict it with certainty. And second, you may be able to predict it not with certainty, but with a good deal of probability, like whether it will rain or whether a patient will get better. But there's also a third way of predicting the future. Sometimes you can't predict what will happen with confidence because the causes of a situation just go beyond man's knowledge. For example, we can't say with certainty what an individual person will choose to do by free will. But God sees the future, and so he knows what the person will freely choose to do. That means that the third way of accurately predicting the future is for God to tell you what will happen by divine revelation. But if God doesn't do that, you don't have a rational basis for making that kind of prediction. And Aquinas thus says, Accordingly, it is not called divination. If a man foretells things that happen of necessity, or in the majority of instances, for the like can be foreknown by human reason. So if astrologers predict something that can be known with certainty, like an eclipse, that won't be divination. Similarly, if they, can, if they predict something that can be known with a good degree of confidence, like whether it will rain or whether there will be a war, it's also not divination for Aquinas. But if they try to predict things the stars can't tell you, like what an individual will do with his free will, then it will be superstitious divination because he says, by observing the stars, one desires to foreknow the future that cannot be forecast by their means. All right, so let's move on from astrology and look at some other subjects. Earlier, you said we'd look at what Aquinas had to say about crystal healing. Isn't it kind of surprising that he'd discuss that? For someone living today, it certainly would seem so. Today, we, we associate using crystals to heal people with the New Age movement, and so it seems you know like something from the 1960s or the 1980s. But in the ancient world, it was popularly believed that various substances had healing powers. You know, that was obviously the case with organic substances like herbs, and in some cases it was true, as we covered in episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. Willow bark really will help relieve headaches and fevers because it contains salicin, which is a compound very similar to acetyl salicylic acid or aspirin. So you could use willow bark to heal people. But in the 1200s, people also thought that inorganic substances had healing powers. And sometimes that's true. 
as we covered in episode 91 on the government acid conspiracy and episode 100, our mysterious update, the elements silver, copper, and zinc have the ability to kill various microbes and viruses. That's why water pipes and doorknobs are often made out of copper. Well, in Aquinas' day, people thought a lot of other inorganic substances also had health-promoting powers. In his Letter on the Occult Workings of Nature, Aquinas cites the example of the crystal sapphire, which, based on the science of his day, he thought could help stop bleeding. So he did endorse a kind of crystal healing. He also thought that gold had the ability to improve mood, and not just because it meant you had money. He thought that it could be used as a kind of medicine to treat depression. And so Aquinas didn't see a problem with using the natural properties of substances like sapphire or gold to treat medical conditions. He wrote, There is nothing superstitious or unlawful in employing natural things simply for the purpose of causing certain effects, such as they are thought to have the natural power of producing. But there was a problem if you were adding magical or superstitious observances to an object's natural properties. Thus he said, But if in addition there be employed certain mystical characters, words, or any other vain observances, which clearly have no efficacy by nature, it will be superstitious and unlawful. So natural effects okay, but beyond that you're getting into superstition. What about other ways of helping people with sickness or dangers, like wearing an amulet for purposes of healing or protection? This is an interesting one, because people in the Middle Ages did wear items around their neck for purposes of healing and protection. Sometimes this would involve wearing written words, like a passage from the Gospels, or it might involve symbols, or it might even be a relic of one of the saints. And even today, people wear blessed religious medals, like a miraculous medal or a scapular. These are even considered as sacramentals by the church. So, you know, there's no way that Aquinas is going to say this is fundamentally wrong. In essence, these things are a kind of acted out prayer, where by wearing an item, you're asking God to heal or protect you. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with prayer. But... Prayer can get tangled up with superstition or magic, and so Aquinas has some cautions to give. He also applies the same principle to what happens if you say the words out loud for healing or protection. So it could be an oral prayer in addition to a written prayer you might have on an amulet. He writes, In every incantation or wearing of written words, two points seem to demand caution. The first is the thing said or written, because if it is connected with invocation of the demons, it is clearly superstitious and unlawful. Unlike manner, it seems that one should beware lest it contain strange words, for fear that they conceal something unlawful. Hence, Pseudo Chrysostom says that many now, after the example of the Pharisees who enlarge their fringes, invent and write Hebrew names of angels and fasten them to their persons. Such things seem fearsome to those who do not understand them. Again, one should take care lest it contain anything false, because in that case also the effect would not be ascribed to God, who does not bear witness to a falsehood. So Aquinas acknowledges that you can wear or say words for healing or protection. His article on the subject mentions the Our Father and the Hail Mary as examples. But 
Make sure that the words are directed to God, not to demons. Make sure that they don't contain anything false, since God doesn't approve of falsehood. And make sure that they don't contain any strange words that might express something unlawful, like magic words in another language. He also said to be careful about anything you add to the words, saying, In the second place, one should beware lest besides the sacred words it contains something vain, for instance certain written characters, except the sign of the cross, or if hope be placed in the manner of writing or fastening, or in any like vanity, having no connection with reverence for God, because this would be pronounced superstitious. Otherwise, however, it is lawful. Hence it is written in the Decretals, In blending together medicinal herbs, it is not lawful to make use of observances or incantations other than the divine symbol, that is, making the sign of the cross, or the Lord's Prayer, so as to give honor to none but God the Creator of all. So make sure that you don't use any strange, possibly unholy symbols, but you can make the sign of the cross, and make sure that you're placing your confidence in God, not in a special way you do the writing, or a special way you tie it around your neck, because those are superstitious. But otherwise, you can wear an object around your neck for healing or protection, as long as it only contains wholesome Christian words and symbols, and you're placing your confidence in God, and wearing it is just an enacted prayer. Similarly, if you're taking medicines or making medicines, you can say prayers like the Lord's Prayer and make the sign of the cross, but don't go doing strange magic invocations or making non-Christian symbols. Right before we go into our next topic, uh, I do want to take a moment here for a very important task, which is to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Samuel K, Jackford K, Denise L, Ramona F, and Christian K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at Starquest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com/give. So, Jimmy, sometimes people use what seem to be random processes to predict the future or get answers to questions like rolling dice or casting down sticks in, in the I Ching. Did Aquinas have anything to say about this kind of practice? Yeah, uh, this kind of practice is known sometimes as sortilege or cleromancy. In Latin, a lot is known as a sores. So if you're casting lots, you were doing sortilege. In Greek, a lot was known as a kleros, so casting lots also came to be known as kleromancy. Today, people sometimes draw lots when they need to just randomly pick a person, like who gets the dangerous or unpleasant assignment, and we think of it as just being random because no human is in control of who gets the short straw, at least if nobody is cheating. <laughs> But in the ancient world, it was assumed that non-human spirits were guiding the selection, either God or the gods or some other spirits. So you could use the processes that weren't controlled by humans to get information from the non-human spirits. What's interesting from the a Christian perspective is that there is a form of sortilege, that, in, for, in fact, more than one, that gets used in the Bible both in the Old and the New Testaments. For example, the high priest in Israel had a set of objects in his breastplate known as the Urim and Thummim. 
and these were supposed to determine what God's will was on a particular matter. So it was one of the ways that the Israelites could inquire of the Lord. The high priest would like reach into his breastplate and pull out the Urim or the Thummim, and that would indicate the answer to the question that was being asked. But it wasn't always by the Urim and Thummim that they did this. On other occasions, people besides the high priest would cast lots to determine things. On at least three occasions, they did so to find out who had committed an offense. They did that, for example, with Achan and with Saul's son, Jonathan, and also the prophet Jonah. Thus, when Jonah was in the ship and they were in trouble, the sailors cast lots to find out who was the source of the problem. And the lot fell to Jonah, so they pitched him overboard, which is how he ended up getting swallowed by the fish. The Israelites also used lots to determine God's will about other things, like who should be chosen king, which is how the prophet Samuel learned that Saul should be their first king. Saul drew lots progressively until he identified Saul as the one. And this wasn't just an Old Testament practice. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter and the apostles use lots to determine who will be Judas's replacement, and that's how they selected the apostle Matthias. Now, some people have tried to say that they did this only because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet, and so we shouldn't do this after Pentecost. But that's highly speculative, in my opinion. And in Eastern Christianity, they do continue to use lots to determine who will serve in certain church offices. This is sometimes done in Eastern Orthodoxy, and it's regularly done in the Coptic Church in Egypt. That's how the Coptic Pope is selected. They determine three possible candidates, then put their names on slips of paper in a chalice, which they put on the altar, and then they say the Divine Liturgy, their, you know, the Mass, and then they select the name of the new pope, who currently is Pope Tawadros II. So this casting of lots has a place in Christian tradition. Is relying on a process like casting lots really a good way to determine God's will? It depends on whether God chooses to use the process to communicate his will. There's an interesting statement in Proverbs 16.33, which says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is wholly from the Lord. So, you know, you may cast the lot, but God is ultimately in control. And as an expression of God's providence, that's quite true. The lot would not come up the way it does unless God at least allowed it to do so. But just because God is ultimately in control of what happens, that doesn't mean he's always trying to communicate through lots. So there's a role for this, this God's not talking here. In fact, that's the reason that Saul went to the witch of Endor in the first place, because when he tried inquiring of God, God refused to answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So the Israelites knew that God sometimes didn't answer you when you tried casting lots. Unfortunately, we don't have the details of the procedure that the Israelites used when casting lots, but they apparently had ways of checking to see if God was answering or not. One way this likely happened was if the lots produced inconsistent results. For example, if you asked the same question multiple times and the lots kept falling the same way, 
that would be evidence that God is giving you an answer. But if you ask the same questions multiple different times and the lots come up different ways, that's evidence God is not answering. So it's really up to God. He's in control of the universe, and so he can control the way lots come up. The question is whether he will do so in a particular instance and whether you have evidence that that's happening. In view of all this biblical precedence, does that mean Aquinas didn't have a problem with sortilage? Actually, the situation's rather tricky. You see, casting lots is just one kind of process that humans don't control. But there are many others as well, and you could also use those processes to determine the will of God or the gods. For example, humans don't control the shapes that fire takes as it burns, and so some people have used those shapes in a form of divination called pyromancy. Neither do humans control the shape of water as it flows, and so people have used that to do hydromancy. And they don't control the condition of an animal's entrails when it's been sacrificed. So people have used those to do haruspicy. Also, we don't control the flights of birds. And so people have looked at those to do auspicy, from which we get the word auspices. You know, are the auspices favorable? Did the birds fly the right way? And there are lots of other non-human controlled processes that have been used in an attempt to try to discern the will of God or the gods by divination. The problem for Aquinas is that almost all of those are traditionally forbidden in Judaism and Christianity. It's only sortilage that has this kind of biblical basis. So that creates a bit of a problem situation for him. He does reject all of those others like pyromancy and hydromancy as unacceptable forms of divination and magic, but he has to make some kind of allowance for sortilage. So it really goes back to what we discussed in episode 79, the difference between a magic ritual and a religious ritual is whether the ritual is authorized or not. If God authorizes a ritual, it's permitted but if he doesn't authorize it, then it's not, and it gets classified as magic. So that's really the difference between sortilage and these other things. God, at least on some occasions, has authorized sortilage, but not these other things. And since God authorized this ritual, should Aquinas have any problems with it? Well, just because God's authorized something doesn't mean you can't do it the wrong way. And so Aquinas has a set of limits that he thinks needs to be observed when it comes to sortilage. He also, since he loves making distinctions, the first thing he does is describe three different types of sortilage, saying, If by casting lots one seeks to know what is to be given to whom, whether it be a possession, an honor, a dignity, a punishment, or some action or other, it is called sortilage of allotment. If one seeks to know what ought to be done, it is called sortilage of consultation. If one seeks to know what is going to happen, it is called sortilage of divination. Then Aquinas wants you to be clear about what you're relying on when you're trying to get a decision by casting lots. He says that it is not the stars, uh, that they don't control the way the lots fall. And so if you think it's the stars, if you're trusting in the stars to give you an answer, you're being superstitious and your sortilage is unlawful. He says that if you're doing sortilage of allotment, just, you know, figuring out who gets what, like you get 
you get to be dishwasher this week and you get to take out the trash this week or whatever, then you can rely on just random chance. So he acknowledges random chance is a thing that God allows to happen. This is and he doesn't go into that, but he does just talk about chance as being what you you can rely on if you're just doing sortilege of allotment. But if you're trying to do sortilege of consultation or sortilege of divination to learn about the future, so either to know what we ought to do or to know what's going to happen, then you need to rely on a spiritual source because chance isn't going to tell you that. So that spiritual source is either going to be God or it's going to be demons. And obviously Aquinas says, do not rely on demons, only consult God. But he says, even if you're doing sortilege, and it's not wrong in principle, it can become sinful in four ways. First, he says that sortilege should not be used frivolously, but only when you have a good reason. Because even if you're, if you're you know, trying to talk to God and get his decision by sortilege and you're just saying, should I have the pepperoni or not? You're being irreverent. You're not consulting God on a weighty matter. You don't have a special need for that. You can make that decision yourself. Secondly, he says sortilege should only be used reverently, and he notes that the before the apostles used sortilege to pick Matthias, they prayed to God first. That's kind of like how the Coptic people will say mass first before they use sortilege to pick the new pope. Third, Aquinas says it shouldn't be used for earthly business. And what he means isn't entirely clear. He doesn't really give an example here in the Summa. This may more or less be just another way of saying don't use it frivolously, but only for important things. It's not really clear what he means by earthly matters, because he does say you can use it. If you read a little further, he talks about using it for selecting a king, which is an earthly matter or similar things, which are kind of earthly. And then the fourth thing he says, and this is really quite surprising, is he says, don't use it to select ecclesiastical offices, which is exactly what the apostles did use it for. The reason that he gives is for not using it that way anymore is he says, well, later on, the apostles chose ministers themselves rather than using lots. But I don't think that's a good argument. I think part of the reason the apostles used lots when they selected Matthias is they had more than one good candidate to replace Judas, and it was hard to make the decision on a purely human level. If they had only one really good replacement candidate who would have been markedly superior to anybody else, well, then they just would have picked him. It's only because they had more than one good candidate that they needed to use lots to determine God's will, because God's will wasn't already obvious. And it's also possible that Aquinas might have taken a softer attitude towards using sortilege in ecclesiastical elections if he had known that other parts of the Christian world had a tradition of using it. But given the communications in his day, he might not have known that. If Aquinas says sortilege is okay in at least some circumstances, does that mean people can use it today? Aquinas's caution about not recklessly using sortilege is important, and I'd actually add several more cautions to what Aquinas says. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into those now. We may do a future episode on the topic that'll let me go into detail. But until then, my short answer is do not use sortilege. 
while there are situations where it's legitimate, it is far too easy to slip into error or superstition or OCD. And nobody should be using it without a full explanation, which we haven't been able to provide here. So using swordage without the proper background is dangerous, you know, like using a gun without having firearms training or using a prescription medication without talking to a doctor, thinking I'm going to roll some dice and this is going to give me a revelation from God is something you got to be really careful about. So don't. Well, there goes my magic eight ball. <laughs> so uh let's move on to answer unclear ask again later <laughs> exactly so uh let's move on to the ne- the next topic then what did aquinas have to say about demons he had rather a lot to say about them and to keep this episode from getting way too long we won't be going into depth here we've already covered some of the things that aquinas had to say about demons like if you go back and check out episode 90 on werewolves We talked about how Aquinas said demons could cause illusions of people transforming into animals, but they couldn't really change the human form. Also, in episode 100 in our Mysterious Updates, we talked about how Aquinas explained one way that demons could interfere in human affairs to produce human offspring like the Nephilim, which we discussed back in episode 87. And we may do a future episode just on Aquinas and demonology. However, I do want to point out a few things that come up regularly in Aquinas' discussions of how demons relate to hidden or occult phenomena. First, he doesn't automatically attribute everything occult to demons. He's perfectly happy to acknowledge that some hidden things are purely natural, like the hidden properties of magnets or sapphires that he things exist. He's also happy to see God and, by extension, the good angels as being behind some phenomena, like if you're praying when mixing medicine and God intervenes to help the person who receives the medicine get better. But if an effect isn't due to natural causes or to God or his agents, like the angels, then Aquinas does attribute it to demons. For Aquinas, this happens in two ways. First, Some people openly invoke demons. That is, they call upon them to do their bidding. And there were even Christians who defended this idea, arguing that since the power of demons comes from God, it's okay for Christians to use demonic power. Aquinas says that's completely wrong and foolish. You cannot trust demons. And if you try to use them that way, it will end in misery. Second, the other way Aquinas says is that even if you don't call on the demons, they may butt in. In, They may involve themselves in a situation to try to trick people and get them to trust in what he calls vain things. This is one of the reasons he's really against putting strange symbols or words on things. Symbols and words have no natural effect, so it requires an agent with an intellect to respond to a symbol or a word. And so if you're using symbols or words, you're invoking some kind of agent. And if the agent isn't God or his angels or the saints, who is it? In the ancient pagan imagination, there were all kinds of spirits in the world who might be good or neutral or evil or a mix of those things. And so by invoking such spirits, you weren't automatically invoking spirits who were bad. You know, for example, if the spirit of a tree or a river 
you needed to talk to one of them. Well, they might be a neutral spirit. And so if you ask the tree or river spirit nicely, it might help you out. But when Christianity began to spread, this assumption was replaced and it was understood that all spirits are either good or bad. The good ones, the angels and saints, are really, really good. And the bad ones, the demons and the damned, are really, really bad. So there isn't a a real middle ground in the spiritual world. So if you're not invoking God or the angels allied with him, the only other non-human spirits who could respond are the demons. So if you've got an object that you want to wear around your neck for protection and you start carving strange non-Christian symbols on it, the only spirits who might respond to those symbols are the bad ones. This is a key assumption that makes magic so problematic from a Christian point of view. It's the absence of a spiritual middle ground. If there were a bunch of spirits who had similar moral qualities to human beings, then you might be able to appeal to them and get them to do what you'd like, just like you could appeal to another human being and win them over. And that's essentially what pre-Christian people thought to be the case. Their gods and spirits were morally similar to human beings. You look at the Olympian gods, they're they're basically like a bunch of superheroes, but they have similar moral properties to ordinary people. They're a mix of good and evil rather than just one or the other, and so you can kind of win them over like you might convince Superman to do what you want. If Aquinas warned people against demons, what did he have to say about ghosts? He believed in ghosts and recognized that the spirits of departed humans could also manifest in the world. Like all medievals, Aquinas recognized that the saints in heaven could appear to men, and he recognized the same was true of other souls, writing, It is also credible that this may occur sometimes to the damned, and that for man's instruction and intimidation they be permitted to appear to the living, or again in order to seek our suffrages, as to those who are detained in purgatory. The damned thus might appear, perhaps even against their will, to scare the living back onto the straight and narrow. And those being purified in purgatory could appear to seek our prayers. If Aquinas believed that spirits like angels and demons had the ability to affect things in the world, did he think that human spirits had similar power? Well, Aquinas held that human souls can affect their own bodies directly, so we can control our bodies. But he also held that they can affect other things indirectly. For example, In the Summa Theologiae, he says, quote, when a soul is vehemently moved to wickedness, close quote, that this might manifest in the eyes so that, quote, the eyes infect the air which is in contact with them to a certain distance, close quote, and thus, quote, the countenance becomes venomous and hurtful especially to children who have a tender and most impressionable body, close quote. This was Aquinas's explanation for the evil eye. And the evil eye in a lot of Mediterranean belief systems was that you could look at a person in a way that would hurt them objectively. And Aquinas said it was reasonable to fear that a child might be harmed by it. Now, you'll notice the Aristotelian physics he's using here. Like we talked about in the last episode, uh, Aristotelian physics held that for one thing to affect another thing, there had to be a medium 
connecting them. Like you can't hear a person's voice unless there's the medium of air between you and the person who's speaking. Well, Aquinas believed that applied to everything. And so if he thinks your gaze can hurt somebody, then what he's envisioning is that your spirit does something in your eyes, so it controls your eyes in a way that infects the air, which then hurts the other person. So you have this physical chain of events that starts out with this violent, violent, vehement motion of the soul to wickedness. So the air could transmit this and cause harm to the victim, especially people with more fragile bodies like children. He only considers this, interestingly, in the case of a person's soul being moved by a desire to harm someone, not whether the same principle could be used for neutral or good purposes. You know, like maybe you could help somebody by doing this. But he does see the soul as having at least a weak, natural ability, because you're not relying on God or demons for this. It's a natural ability of the human soul capable of producing physical effects remotely. Today, such natural mental abilities to affect things at a distance would be classified as psychic powers. And specifically, this would be classified as a form of telekinesis, or what's sometimes called remote influence or remote perturbation. Today, the explanation of how it works would be different, because telekinesis isn't thought to require the medium of air to work, just like you know, we now know other things like gravity can work across a vacuum, so you don't need that medium there. But it's striking that Aquinas thinks humans do have a kind of telekinetic psychic ability that's responsible for things like the evil eye. So my Sicilian grandmother would be essentially be a Jedi. That's what you're saying. Uh, Or a Sith. (laughs) Or a Sith. (laughs) Let's not go there. So did Aquinas think that there were other natural human mental abilities that we today would classify as psychic? Actually, yeah. He thought that humans can display precognition, which he referred to as natural prophecy. In supernatural prophecy, or prophecy in the proper sense, God reveals something to a person, possibly through an angel. But Aquinas held that humans also have a natural disposition, allowing them to sometimes learn about the future. He distinguished this from predictions based on learning and experience, such as how the doctor foresees that health or death will come, or a meteorologist foresees the storm or fair weather due to their technical knowledge. Instead, in his work, Disputed Questions on Truth, Aquinas said that natural prophecy, quote, is derived from the power of created causes insofar as certain movements can be impressed on the human imaginative power, close quote. So the idea is there are these causes out in the world that can impress themselves onto the human imagination. And given the influence that he believed the stars have, It's no surprise that he saw them as one of the causes of these impressions. So he said that they can be produced, quote, for instance, by the power of the heavenly bodies in which there pre-exist some signs of certain future events, close quote. But just like we talked about in astrology, you can't use it to predict everything with certainty. Consequently, he says, unlike supernatural prophecy, natural prophecy is not infallible. 
quote, but predicts those things which are true for the most part, close quote. Natural prophecy can occur in dreams, but it wasn't the only reason that dreams sometimes foretell the future. Aquinas says that they may do so just by chance, or they can predict the future when a man responds to a dream in a way that causes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or, he says, predictive dreams may be caused by God or angels or demons. But sometimes, he says, they are due to the natural disposition of the heavenly bodies. Now, Aquinas, unfortunately, he doesn't go into detail about how you can tell when that's happening, you know, versus these other possibilities. But he does say, quote, we must say that there is no unlawful divination in making use of dreams for the foreknowledge of the future, so long as those dreams are due to divine revelation or to some natural cause, inward or outward. Now, again, the modern explanation of precognition would differ. Parapsychologists wouldn't typically attribute it to the influence of the stars. But Aquinas would agree with a modern parapsychologist that humans have at least a weak natural precognitive ability that can sometimes manifest in dreams. We've seen what Aquinas has to say about a lot of different things that were considered occult or hidden in his day. How would we evaluate what he has to say today? From the reason perspective, we've learned a lot more. Since Aquinas' time, a scientific revolution has occurred, and a lot of the things that were hidden in his day are now well understood, like why magnets attract iron. Today, we quantum mechanics provides an explanation for why that happens, although there are still aspects of quantum mechanics we don't understand. A lot of the science from the 1200s has been superseded, and so we know today that the stars do not have the kind of influence that Aquinas and his contemporaries thought, as we discussed back in episode 23 on astrology. There's also been more than 700 years of doctrinal development since his day, and the Catechism of the Catholic Church has a brief section that deals with a lot of the same things Aquinas talks about. And to hear our discussion of it, you can go back, listen to episode 79 on religion, magic, psychic phenomena, and science. One of the best things we can do with Aquinas' discussion of the occult is look at the principles that he employs. He doesn't simply dismiss everything hidden as due to demons. He recognizes that demons are real and that we need to avoid them, but he doesn't just say, oh, this thing is mysterious, so it must be demonic. Instead, he gives a set of principles that you can use to evaluate whether a given thing is legitimate or whether it will be superstitious and unlawful. The first principle concerns whether the goal of the practice is good. If you're trying to do something wrong, like harm a child with the evil eye, then the practice is not going to be permitted. What if, what if that's not the case? What if it's good? You're trying to do something good. Well, then you go to the second principle. The second principle concerns whether the practice can be expected to have an effect. If the practice can't possibly work, like expecting an image to have power from the stars because you put an astrological symbol on it, then it's superstitious and it's not permitted. 
But what if what you're trying to do is good and you have reason to suspect it will work? Well, then you go to the third principle, which concerns how it works. Is it by natural means or not? If you're relying only on powers that God built into nature, like an herb's ability to heal somebody, willow bark curing a headache, then the practice will be lawful. Okay, so, well, good, but what if the practice doesn't just involve the natural effects of a substance? What if it involves invoking some kind of spiritual entity for its power? Well, then you go to the fourth principle, who are you invoking? If it's demons, the practice is unlawful. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. (laughs) It's right out. On the other hand, suppose you're invoking God or his angels or the saints. Are we home free here? Aquinas would say no. There's a fifth principle. You got to be reverent because it is possible to invoke them superstitiously. So you want to make sure you're being reasonable and reverent in how you invoke them. But if you are, then the practice is going to be legitimate. And these are good, solid principles, and uh, we should keep them in mind when we're evaluating practices in our own day. So, Jimmy, we come to the end of these two episodes on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. What's your bottom line? Aquinas was one of the greatest intellects in the history of the church, and he used his intellect to evaluate a wide range of phenomena that involved principles which were considered hidden or occult in his day. He took a balanced view, recognizing that God's world contains many mysteries that are hidden from the knowledge of man, and we don't need to automatically reject those as evil. But there are spiritual dangers we need to watch out for. Aquinas was hampered by the science of his day, which wasn't nearly as advanced as it is in our day. But when evaluating practices, he used principles that are solid and that can still be helpful to us today. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners about this topic? Well, once again, we'll have a link to G.K. Chesterton's book, St. Thomas Aquinas, also my book, Teaching with Authority. Alexander Boxer's book, A Scheme of Heaven, which deals with the history of astronomy and math- of astrology and astronomy and mathematics. Also, the article I wrote on St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult. And one of the nice things about that article is it has an algorithm where I take Aquinas's five principles that we just went through and put them in an algorithm so you can see how if this, then that, if this other thing, then this other thing makes the decision procedure very easy to visualize. So check that out. We'll also have the Catholic Encyclopedia's article on Thomas Aquinas, a link to his Summa Theologiae, where a lot of the quotes we did today came from, and also his letter on the occult workings of nature. Very good. Excellent. Great couple of episodes we've just had. I really enjoy this topic. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback from our listeners. This time we're uh, getting feedback on our second of the two episodes on David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, this one on the Waco siege itself. Uh, And our first feedback comes from Ken on Facebook, who wrote, This was one of your best shows, worthy of the two parts and a fine example of the diligent research you guys do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ken. Uh, Then Ernest writes on Facebook, fascinating. I really appreciate Jimmy's fair and rational treatment of both sides of these stories. Sort of a St. Thomas Aquinas approach. 
Well, it's ironic that uh, we're <laughs> we're doing Waco feedback on this, in a St. Thomas Aquinas episode. But yes, I I really do try to model his open but critical approach to evaluating things. Uh, Father Jeff Horton uh, sends an email who says, uh, what struck me in reading The Ashes of Waco was reinforced when I read Stalling for Time. The FBI negotiators never took seriously the idea that Koresh believed what he said. He was a fraud, a con man, etc. When they'd ask, don't you want the children to be safe? From a secular point of view, that makes sense. From a religious one, it might not. That's the part that scares me most as a religious believer that government officials with life and death power might not be able to believe that I mean what I say. I'm not planning on holding up in a commune anytime soon, he says. Yeah, and uh, Father Jeff is right. When you read Gary Nosner's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, he does just come into the Waco chapter regarding David Koresh as a con man. And, And even his account is otherwise very informative, and his instincts were right that you, you you'll get more people out of there if you take a soft approach rather than a harsh approach with the Davidians. His approach was working, but even he tended to just think of Koresh as a con man rather than someone who sincerely believed God told you do this. So do it. Right. Uh, Charles writes on Facebook. One of the worst parts about the whole Waco in Ruby Ridge stories is that the federal agents who at the very least used excessive force and at worst committed mass murder, will never face justice. They get slaps on the wrist and allowed to continue in government employment. 99% of federal agents are probably decent folks, but that 1% that isn't never face the consequences for their actions. One of the reasons they don't face the consequences of their actions is because of what's known as the doctrine of qualified immunity. This is a legal doctrine that was invented by judges. It is not found in the law itself. But judges came up with this idea that uh, law enforcement officials have this qualified immunity from prosecution such that they can't be prosecuted even when they do really horrible stuff because of their office with very few exceptions. The good news is that there are a bunch of qualified immunity cases that may be about to be dealt with by the Supreme Court. And you have justices on both sides of the political spectrum, including Sonia Sotomayor and Clarence Thomas, who are saying this is terrible. We've created a legal doctrine that has no basis in the text of the law and that is allowing cops to literally get away with murder in some cases, or something that looks very much like murder. And even more broadly, if you take it figuratively, commit really serious abuses, they should be able to be prosecuted for. So it looks like the Supreme Court may be revising, and I don't know that I hope that they would go as far as abolish it, although I'd love them to abolish it. I don't know that they will. But they there are a bunch of cases that are that are being considered for possible adjudication by the Supreme Court that could result in changes or abolition to the doctrine of qualified immunity. And we'll have a couple of links in the further resources so you can learn about those cases. But I'm really hoping they will prune back or get rid of qualified immunity. Very timely as well. So uh, Temp911 Luke on YouTube writes, I can't understand why Jimmy seems to justify Koresh and his followers' actions when they started to shoot back. Maybe I could understand that if he'd lived in North Korea, but not in USA. I don't justify Koresh or his followers when they 
defended themselves at the initial ATF raid, I pointed out that they had the legal right to do so because they were portrayed as a bunch of lawbreakers. And actually, that's not the case. Texas law allows you to defend yourself if law enforcement is using excessive force and a jury cleared them. So whether you think it's advisable that they do that or not, they had the legal right to do so, which is all I was trying to point out. Having said that, to go beyond that, it's very hard to put yourself in the position of a person who is under fire and has a gun and could defend themselves. And what's the prudent thing to do? Do I do I just duck or do I shoot back? What's the best way to save me and the other people around me? It's very hard to judge people not being in that situation. And I can see reasonable people having to make decisions in what's obviously an emergency situation that would have different opinions about what the best thing to do is. So beyond noting that they had the legal right to defend themselves, I don't attempt to form a judgment about whether they should have or not. People, I think, in making making decisions in emergency circumstances can come to different conclusions about that. Uh, then Susan uh, writes on Facebook, I was waiting all week for the conclusion to this two-parter. It was an equally compelling and disturbing episode from you two. It's pretty ironic that one of the ostensible reasons for going in was to save the children when ultimately most of the kids end up dying in the attack. Well, in fact, all of the kids who were left in the compound at the time did die in the attack. Uh, and so it's absolutely horrific that Janet Reno was manipulated by her underlings based on her known desire to be tough with people she thought was abu were abusing children. They convinced her abuse was happening, that they had evidence that it was happening when they didn't. And then they did this horrific raid that killed all those children they were trying to save. Uh, then Andrew writes on Facebook, Jimmy, the first five minutes of this episode of your description of the word cult is worth the listen alone. Your approach to be fair and above respectful of others' religious views is a good reminder for all of us when there is a tendency today to attack when we disagree. Thank you. I have for many years not used the word cult to refer to groups that I consider problematic because it's just become an insult term that all it means is religious group I don't like. And it's much better to avoid the, the quarrels about words, as St. Thomas said, as St. Paul says, and instead go for the substance. If you think that a group is doing something bad or believe something that's false, say that. But otherwise, follow the golden rule. Say that and argue your case. But otherwise, follow the golden rule. If you don't want people using insult words like cult for your group, don't use it for theirs. It's only going to generate heat rather than light. All right. And thank you, everyone, for your feedback. It was excellent. Yeah. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? One headline is an article about glacier mice. Glacier mice are a rare phenomenon, and they're not what you might think. They do live on glaciers, but they're not literally mice. Instead, they're like balls of moss. And so sometimes glaciers, this is rare, but people have known about this for a while. Glaciers will get these swarms of moss balls on them. They're not rooted in the ice. They're not rooted in the ground. They're just moss balls that are sitting on the glacier, and they move like a herd of mice, sort of. But we're not sure what's moving them. Scientists have proposed a bunch of different theories, like, okay, maybe they're being blown by the wind, or maybe it's the sun melting the ice in a certain way. And when they check out those theories, no, 
we don't know what causes the glacier mice to migrate in mass. And so uh, check out the link and you can look at the glacier mice for yourself and also uh, the different theories about them. Jimmy, this is a, an example of Aquinas's natural predictive ability. When my wife Melanie told me about this same story, I said, I predict this will be a mysterious headline. (laughs) (laughs) Whether that was due to precognition or just smarts, I'll (laughs) leave up to the listeners to decide. Our second one is about plague doctors. Many people with the recent coronavirus outbreak have been seeing images of these doctors from the past wearing this kind of bird-like mask with a long beak and a kind of trench coat. And this is the idea of this is what doctors used to wear to protect themselves as, you know, personal protective equipment back in plagues in the past. Well, yes and no. There are a variety of medical myths about plague doctors. And so we'll have a link, including what they wore and when they wore it. So we'll have a link to an article on sorting medical myths from facts when it comes to those freaky looking plague doctors of the past. Very good. All right, this is where I want to ask the listeners for your feedback. I want to hear your theories about what Thomas Aquinas had to say about the occult and uh, about Thomas Aquinas himself. And uh, and also last time, Jimmy, you asked for people if they had a resources for a particular kind of book on Aquinas. Yeah, there are some. We talked about reports of some mystical experiences he allegedly had towards the end of his life, but the accounts we have conflict about those and whether they happened. And so I would love to see if anybody has a scholarly biography that would point us to the original 13th century sources so we could see not just later summaries of what people may have said, but what the actual original documents say in Latin. Excellent. All right. So let's hear from you. You can let us know uh, uh, by going to sqpn.com or Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page or send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, in the feedback segment on this episode, we talked about how the FBI didn't do so great and kind of violated some people's rights with the Branch Davidians at Waco. Well. That wasn't the first time the FBI had a history of bad behavior, and that attracted the notice of some people back in 1971, and they decided to take matters into their own hands and do their own investigation and expose of the FBI by burgling one of its offices and stealing its files. So we're going to be telling the dramatic story of the 1971 burglary that exposed some of the FBI's deepest secrets and changed the agency forever. Ooh, very interesting. All right. So remember to like this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter, where you can also find us at SQPN. Uh, we, you can also find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines in our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.